From the front lines to the home front, America's military veterans and first responders are committed to serving our nation and our community and protecting our way of life. The Epic Times Battlefield Project, in partnership with the Havoc Journal, gives voice to America's service community and highlights their successes and their struggles, their triumphs, and their tragedies. In their own words and from their own hearts, these are their battlefields. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Paddlefield Podcast, where we cover everything from the front lines to the home front. I am your host, Lieutenant Colonel Retired Charles Fate, here today with my friend and fellow war veteran, Iman Kafel. As a reminder, if you enjoy today's podcast, go ahead and hit that like button and share this podcast with your friends. You should also check out the other great military and first responder content on the Epic Times and in the Havoc Journal. With that said, Iman, welcome to Battlefields, brother. Hey, how you doing, bro? <laughs> What's going on? Hey, really excited to have you as the inaugural guest for Battlefields. I mean, you and I have known each other for for quite a while now, but I know our audience doesn't. So I thought we'd just start off with the story of you, where you came from, how you got where you are right now. I'll turn it over to you, brother. Yeah. All right, Joe, brother. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I've, uh, I've, uh, you know, my, I was born overseas um, in uh, in Monrovia, Liberia. That's where I was born, and my my family was down there. And we uh, civil war broke out down there because Charles Taylor, and we ended up having to escape. I think uh, my father told me literally we had hours before we were able to, uh, you know, get out of there alive. Um, we flew out uh, to uh, Lebanon where civil war was still happening there and ended up finally making our trek into america so uh so it was kind of a little tumultuous i guess in my early years uh you know from being born and then war and then uh and having to find a new home essentially so how much do you remember from your time in liberia in in lebanon i mean so I I remember in Liberia I remember some of the beaches I remember you know little little snapshots here and there and then um you know when the civil war broke out that's also snapshots where I I saw a now mind you this is when I was maybe 3 4 years old 5 years old actually um I remember seeing a soldier get blown up by what I think is a hand grenade he jumped out of a uh uh maybe a deuce and a half uh, military truck jumped out of it and then got blown up. And another snapshot I have is an individual shooting in the air. Um, You know, those are the two bad memories, I guess, if you want to call it, of my time in Liberia. But most of it, the good memories are of the beaches, the, you know, the the people. And, you know, it it was fun, except uh, the Catholic school where I always got hit. (laughs) That's, that's, that's not a good memory, but, but yeah, you know, it's, uh, it is what it is down, you know, out there. Um, and then Lebanon, I, uh, same thing, snapshots. I remember uh, biggest two biggest things I remember that come to mind is artillery shells hitting the cliffside near my village and oh. the various militias, terrorist organizations and whomever, you know, rolling through our village and me running to my house every time, like, you know, scared out of my mind. <laughs> Well, I'm, I'm thinking, who doesn't have bad memories of Catholic school? I'm thinking yeah. about my own, my own fifth grade experience at St. Yeah. Catholic yeah. school. Yeah. So, so you must have been pretty young when you came to the United States then, right? 
Yeah, I was around seven, eight years old when we first landed in the United States. It was December, if I remember correctly. Uh, we landed right in Boston, and right away it was the cold. <laughs> The good old <laughs> New England, Boston cold in no in 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 December, uh, late December. Well, did you already speak English at that point? Yeah, Catholic school, so we okay. you know learned to speak English. So yeah, I, I had a pretty good vocabulary. Very good, very good. Okay, so what was your adjustment like going from Liberia to Lebanon, in the United States? How well do you think you adapted when you got here? Uh, I think. Other than the shock of the cold, where we had to uh, get me some, you know, me, it was just me and my brother at the time, get us warm clothes and get us, you know, situated. But um, I mean, from what I remember, uh, you know, early on was the Christmas lights everywhere. I think it was so different for me to see that, mm-hmm. um, you know, in Boston, there's this uh, area called Downtown Crossing. And at the time, they would have their own snow village. And I remember walking through there and you look into the glass of the... Uh, Filene's basement. I don't even know if those are still around now, but Filene's basement, um, they would put up these uh, uh, kind of like North Pole Village uh, Christmas themes, uh, animatronics doing, you know, whatever they're doing. It was just all like maybe a block, block and a half of that. And that's what I, that's my memory of first coming into Boston is, you know, being able to see that. And it was, for me, it was like really cool to see that kind of stuff. Did you stay in Boston through high school? No, so we moved around a lot uh, until my dad found a, a spot for us to uh, live. I mean, when we first moved into the country, we yeah, we were right in Boston, and uh, it was a tiny apartment. There was, you know, myself, uh, my brother, my mom and dad, and two uncles. You're talking maybe this a studio size apartment. I, I don't. I remember it was just cramped. It was just mattresses everywhere. You know, trying to trying to figure out uh, our living situation until you know my father got a couple jobs, uh, cab driver, security guard. Uh, I think at one point he had three jobs, you know, to try to make ends meet for us and got us into an apartment. Wow, that's that's a lot of effort to yeah. support a family like that. Good on yeah. him. Yeah. So you made it through high school, and then at some point you decided to make the jump and join the army. Can you tell us about that a little bit? Yeah, so I was I was uh, uh, post nine eleven. Uh, you know, nine eleven happened. I was in college, and you know, everything shut down. We had no idea what was going on at the time. Not until you know, like every one of us has our story of you know how it happened. You know, for us, but uh, you know, turn on the radio, and that's when we learned of the attack. And um, you know, shortly after that, like every other. Uh, uh, you know, young, young individual in this country, I shouldn't say every other, you know, some of us decided to raise our right hand and serve. Right. And, uh, and I never had the intention really of joining the army. It's kind of interesting. I was, I was a psychology major, you know, completely different path. And, uh, and I had different paths in my life until that happened. And I realized, you know, you know what, we came into this country, this country welcomed us you know, our family after war and time to give back also. So the war doesn't come home, essentially. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Well, what did you, what did you do in, in the army? What was your MOS? So I was a, uh, a 13 Bravo uh, field artillery. Um, and uh, it was, that was a fun school. I mean, Fort Sill, Oklahoma. Yeah. You know? <laughs> the, 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 the red clay everywhere. And just, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, all intent, it was, it was pretty fun. I, I did uh, uh, three months. So I did OSUT, uh, you know, the full 
the full thing. Um, three months of training and then uh, got assigned to the 102nd Field Artillery. Um, and in basically a year later, uh, deployed to Iraq in 05. So I joined it. So I did the delayed entry program at first because I was finished up my semester in college. I wanted to finish it real, you know, before I, I right. went in. Uh, delayed entry, did the, did finish my semester off at college, did, uh, you know, boot camp essentially, OSUT, and then went to my, got went to my unit, and six months later, uh, eight months later, actually, we got our orders to Iraq. So, where were you in Iraq? So we were north of Baghdad by sixty miles, uh, north of a, uh, the city of Khalis, uh, or Khalis, you know, in, in Arabic, and uh, we uh, were on a small fob of about. 1500 soldiers nice yeah. what year was this this was uh beginning uh end of 04 beginning 05 oh okay so you and i were over there about the same time then it was about the yeah. time we got there for the first time yeah. right on yeah so did you have any inter interactions with the locals while you were over there oh yeah i mean i mean i got in country and um you know, everyone in my new unit knew I spoke Arabic, so they they knew I was going to be busy. Uh, how busy? I had no idea. Like I, it didn't even I didn't even fathom. I mean, looking back now, I was busy. You know, because I spoke Arabic and knew the culture and all that. So, and and the plus side that the big army saw is I'm a soldier, right? Not a not a contract interpreter, not somebody that they have to try to gain trust or anything like that. Like I was already in the army, you know. So, uh, which was kind of cool at one point at some sense because a lot of trust and me being a young 22 20 23 year old i had no idea the amount of uh the weight of that um uh how important it was for me to get that information but but the locals they were they most of it was shock um right most of it had they, they couldn't piece a, a u.s soldier speaking arabic it took them a, it would take them a second uh because i'll i'll uh, i'll never forget uh, we were doing we were going to a base and uh the bridge was out because of an accident they were trying to clear the accident so we can get through and uh, i was up on the gunner and uh you know the the tr uh, truck commander asked hey can you ask him what's going on you know that way we can figure out if we need to reroute whatever so I talked to this Iraqi soldier in Arabic. I said, hey, what's going on with the bridge? He looks at me and he says in, in English, I don't speak English. Like, but I was talking to him in Arabic, right? So, so I was like, I look at him for a second. I said, okay, how about we speak in Arabic, in Arabic? And he said, oh, okay, yeah. So <laughs> then I, I repeat the question and he tells me, and the guys in the gun truck are like kind of confused with what's going on. And I, you know, as we make our way, I tell them the story and they're laughing. And you know, I was I was like, oh my God, you can't make this, you know, stuff up. <laughs> but for the most part, the locals um they liked that they also had a US soldier on their side too, because they were able to relay great intel my way. Um they were able to ask for different supplies, you know, uh, some uh, chlorine tablets for their water to clean their water uh, and different wants and needs of these villages. Because, you know, you were there at the same time I was. So you saw how the villages were, uh, you know, especially the rural areas. They, they don't have much. And, uh, you know, uh, Saddam's government never really paid attention much to their needs. So it was different for them to have, you know, a deuce and a half full of food and supplies show up and drop stuff off. 
So in the area that you were operating in, was that was that Sunni Shia Kurds? What was kind of the? It was it was so I was right in the Sunni Triangle, so it was yeah. mostly Sunnis uh, right in there. Um, I mean, I did go to the Kurdish territory. Like I said, I went everywhere. Uh, the battalion commander ended up plucking me from my unit and said, "You know what? You're working for me now." I think that's and yeah, yeah, and and that's it. I just stayed right with him, and I I, I was fortunate to work with various units uh, as a result because you know they would farm me out to different uh, different units and. If he's going to go somewhere, obviously I go with him because I was part of his PSD guys, um, you know, and uh, and we traveled as far as uh, as far as Tel Afar to Mosul to the Kurdish territories. I mean, we went everywhere. Uh, I think I logged over close to 50,000 miles of combat patrols. Wow. Yeah. Well, you certainly got around the country more than I did. I was mostly down in Balad with the task force and the SF guys. Uh, did you have a favorite part of Iraq from all that that you saw? Well, what was cool is actually Babylon. Uh, we got we got to go down to Babylon. Uh, we decided to do a slight detour <laughs> since we were close enough. A uh, slight detour into Babylon, and uh, the Kurdish territory was actually really nice. Um, uh, they welcomed us with open arms, as you know, as as we are, you know, deep allies with with the Kurds. And uh, and I'll never forget as soon as we crossed into Kurdish territory, the Kurds literally protected us, uh, like ferociously to the point where they said take your helmets off take your ibas off you're safe here we will never let any and you know how it is in in, in that part of the world in that culture when right. yeah you know when they say that they mean it you right. are not you're not going to get hurt so you know yeah we got a little lax because of like oh this, this is nice you know let's and also we're trying to respect their uh wishes to feel safe and relaxed and you know put stuff away and they drove us around and showed us around and you know we got to our destination there and uh and it was really cool you know it really i mean we were right at the iranian border close to the iranian border and the mountains of the iranian i don't know if you you went uh, over there to see it but the, the iranian border mountain is, is a really cool site and and you see you know as the sun comes up it's actually really really nice other than the landmines that uh, that uh, you know <laughs> that uh, all over the border, but but other than that, it was great. <laughs> yeah, I mean, landmines just ruin everything. Yeah, exactly. You know, especially, you can't take a walk, <laughs> especially the copper ones that the uh, Iranians started introducing later. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah those were that, bad. That made it a lot less fun for sure. Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, I, I was thinking your story about talking to the the Iraqi soldier in Arabic. Um, I was spent a couple of years in Korea and I ran into a group of Korean tourists in Israel when I was there with a group of West Point cadets and Yale students with the PDLI program a couple of years back. And we were outside Jesus's tomb, one of many Jesus's tombs I found out later. And I went up to this guy and started talking to him in, in Korean. Now, I only remember basically how to yell at the dog, but I can introduce <laughs> myself. So I introduced myself into Korean. And he did pretty much what your Iraqi friend did. He responded in English because he was so shocked. Mm -hmm. This is by a white guy in Israel talking to him in Korean. And then he turned he turned around and rattled some long stream of Korean off to his his group. And they stood up and started applauding me. About the time the cadets came out of Jesus' tomb, they were like, Sir, what do you what do you do? What 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 happened? I said, I, I don't know, but let's get out of here before they <laughs> figure out that I got nothing else. Yeah. So yeah, it's it's always interesting how people assume that people that don't, don't look like them can't have some of the same experiences that they do very yeah that, that's the thing i think it's because you know obviously i i look like a guy from the middle east uh you know dark complexion in africa and stuff like that because of my heritage and my great grandparents and stuff but 
me dressed as a U.S. soldier, you know, head to toe, you can't tell, you know. So, so for them, for them, it was such a shock. But you know, to to it was that. That's just no matter where I went in Iraq. I remember we went to the French embassy for a meeting. Uh, our our commander had, and uh, that was like one of my very first missions uh, in country. You know, they took me and and we went right to the French embassy. And so I was part of the security detail outside, uh, right in you know it's it's right in downtown Baghdad. So it's it's not even in the green zone. It's it's uh, it's centered off. So you know security was high. Uh, we get there, I get out, and you know, my squad leader at the time uh, asked me. He's like, "Hey, Iman, can you situate these guys and and." basically set them up to where we need them to be. I said, yeah, absolutely. So I went up to, you know, I asked basically who's the NCO, um, you know, in Arabic and, uh, and guy came up to me and, and it took him a second to register. He's like, Oh, where are you from? It's like, Oh, my I'm Lebanese. I'm a friend from Lebanon, you know, family from Lebanon, whatever. And he's like, oh. you know, and you see the welcoming eyes right away. And they hooked us up with water, juice. I set up the perimeter however I wanted. Uh, we got a tour of the Arnold Schwarzenegger uh, gym that was <laughs> right next to the embassy. <laughs> and and you know it was it was it was cool because you know you get into these philosophical debates with them. You know we kind of see where their mindsets at. They see where my mindsets at. And one of the things that they really uh, th always threw them off was. You know, in a squad of U.S. soldiers, you have black, white, you know, uh, Hispanic, Asian, like in, in my squad alone, you know, just and and they were like, wow. I, I was like, well, that's America. You know, uh, all we're concerned about is the flag and the uniform we're in. And that's it. It's it's it's, it's you don't get this racial division. I mean, other uh, or, or even the sectoral division between uh, religions. It doesn't matter. You know, right. that, that's the big difference as in, in, in the U as a U.S. soldier that I learned because I didn't know how I was going to get taken by, especially after September 11th and me going into the army. And, you know, I'm the first generation of everything in my family between, you know, uh, military and law enforcement. So I didn't even know what to expect when I went down to boot camp. No idea because I didn't know if I was going to get beaten up or or whatever. You know, you, you just hear these rumors and stories and whatever. So I'm like, yeah, you know what? We'll figure it out when I get there. And I, it was a shock to me that it was just like I was so welcomed, you know, no matter what, because you're in the army. That's it. Doesn't matter. Yeah, that's right. And certainly one of the strengths of our nation and our country is that genuine melting block. And it seems more and more like. That's one of the few few ones remaining is the military, because even in colleges now, people are self-segregating along all kind of sec sect lines. And that's that's not good. No, I, I never liked that, especially after I came home and, and started back up to college and everything. And everything had, like you said, self-segregation. And, and I just didn't like that uh, because, one, you're, you're missing out on the sharing of the cultures and, you know, learning of the culture. I mean, you know, even, even in the army, right. You know, guy, uh, this dude from the Northeast of Boston, I got to learn so much from a guy from Kentucky, <laughs> you know, and it, it didn't really matter. You know, we, we would, we would uh, laugh, joke, you know, you know, it is make fun of each other, whatever, you know, yeah, damn Yankee. And, you know, I was like, yeah, whatever we want, we want, you know, we want and, and all that. But, but it's just so funny that, you know, it's, it's different in the civilian world. You know, even even, you know, when we get to an law enforcement world, it's sort of like the military world because it doesn't matter. We're all we all wear the shield. You know, it doesn't matter who you are, race, creed, uh, you know, even uh, sexuality. It doesn't matter you know, because 
I count on you and you count on me to protect each other. And that's all that matters. And, and that's what uh, one of my uh, close friends asked me once, uh, because at the time when I was in the, we were in the military, it was still the don't ask, don't tell. And, uh, you know, none of that was repealed at the time. And I remember he asked me, uh, he said, hey, I, mean, I got a question for you. Said, yeah, what's up? And he said, hey, during your time, I mean, did you suspect anyone was ever gay or anything like that? I'm like, yeah, I mean, you know, soldiers talk and we had our suspicions. Uh, he's like, didn't bother you? You being in the same chair? I'm like, no, not really. No. I said, I said, you know, uh, they do their job. I got their six. They got my six. That's all we cared about. That's all. That was my only concern. It didn't matter about anything else. Nothing else really mattered. And then it, it, it and to him, he was like, oh, all right, that that's cool. That's awesome. Like, but I don't know if it really registered, registered with him on what that looks like i mean you and my you you know i mean we talk a lot you know with combat and stuff and as as a combat veteran combat soldiers we have a whole different take on that you know i got your back i got your six i got you know i got you because it means so much to us uh more than what civilians actually realize that's right most of the folks that don't have those types of experiences just will never get it and i came in i mean i did 27 years in and retired this past november so don't ask don't tell was pretty much in effect my entire career Except yeah. for the very end. But even as a young officer, I just realized what a what a silly policy it was. And I think the politicians cared far more about it than than folks like you and me. No, we never cared. We didn't give a shit. We knew <laughs> who the gay people were. And yeah. especially yeah. when you're downrange. Yeah. Just guys are going to talk about it and you have your suspicions and things like that. But for the most part, we don't care. Do your job. Yep. Don't be a jerk. Everything's yeah. gonna be fine. Yeah. And I remember as as a young officer, it just seemed like such a ridiculous policy because on the one hand, you're telling me that homosexuality is so against our values that you get kicked out for it. And at the same time, you're telling me not to investigate it. Don't ask, don't tell. So it's one or the other. Either this is something that we need to stomp out in the unit or we just need to let it go. And it took it took way too long to just let it go because we didn't care. And. The army didn't fall apart after the policy went away, and I think we're better off because of it now. Yeah, so, yeah exactly, exactly, exactly. Well, I mean, what else stands out to you about your military career? It could be combat, it could be back in the rear. What are some of your memories, good or bad, about being in the army? Um, being in the rear, never liked it. <laughs> 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 I'd rather be, uh, I'd rather be outside the wire doing the job than actually, you know, because it's funny. I talk, I talk all the time with with uh, uh, other other service members, obviously, and and it's it's funny just the different stories too about being in the rear and everybody says the same thing like man we hated the garrison environment we needed to be out on you know in the field doing our jobs and stuff and and you know the i mean fond memories are just you know they're like you know you deployed and you just run into some of the weirdest situations right and and you know whether you're a young officer young nco like like me being a young nco 22 years old as a sergeant like it makes your head you know you 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 mature quick you know when when you're in that environment right real quick um that's one thing that i picked up with myself i guess uh, good or bad it's just the personality changes after you experience what you experienced whether you were loud and vocal and all of a sudden became very reserved or you were reserved and now become a lot more vocal you know that that's the kind of the two things i've noticed uh when soldiers come back from combat you got the either get quiet or get a little more aggressive and and that's what i noticed with myself is i was the quiet reserved kind of guy never really you know i mean if it came time to you know high school fights whatever i'll do whatever but 
um, for the most part, I was the quiet, happy-go-lucky type kid, go to war and come back, and I turn into this, like, more mature. Like, I matured a lot quicker than my college friends. Right? Yeah. My college friends were still partying, doing their thing. Uh, you know, one, one of the best quotes I've heard is, time went on in America while time sta- stayed still for you at war. Like, you know, people are, are moving on. They're doing their thing, doing their, living their life, whatever, whatever. So, so when I came home, I think my maturity level was so much more that my a couple i lost friends as a result right because all they wanted to do was party do this do that and at the time you know you know as you come back home you don't want to be around people <laughs> you know most of the time you're like listen i need some space like i need to relax um but uh but i remember one time you know a couple of my friends one of them said literally you look like you've just been through hell and i was like well yeah look at where i was and the other one was um man you've changed and you know some of those friends i no longer talk to really because they just never caught up or never matured you know fit quick enough to kind of keep up with me you know because at that point i was looking for for my next mission right when i came home i'm like all right what am i going to do now because i w- i had an office job i hated eventually where i'm like all right a couple months prior to coming home i was you know had a couple friends die uh from ieds you know the 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 really bad ieds uh we we were running combat operations and I'm sitting here listening to people on the phone bitch and moan about some of the most stupid, you know, champagne problems. And I'm like, I can't do this. Like, I, I need, right. I need to find purpose. You know, and that's the biggest thing with us in the military after leaving. Uh, I think you know, another thing, you know, like suicide rates are so high and stuff like that is just soldiers. We 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 lo- we easily lose our purpose when we're done. Easily. That's right. Unless we find that next mission, that 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 next chapter in our life that's when we kind of go into this mode of confusion anger you know not knowing what to do i mean i went through it myself when i came home you know i had the confusion the anger all that stuff uh that came together and and in the end i i realized you know what what i'm missing is that second the second mission right you know that 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 next chapter and and a lot of soldiers and Marines and, and sailors and stuff like that. That's what the struggle is, is not finding that next purpose, not realizing that there is more you could do when you get out. Yeah. And not realizing they need it too. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, remember, I was thinking when you were talking, Ivan, after I got back from Iraq, I guess it was 2005. By the time I got back, I did a, a, a pretty short tour comparatively with fifth group. I was an Intel guy, with fifth group there, Balad. And I came back and it was kind of a whirlwind. we, we landed, we got back home, they turned us loose. And like two days later, I was at the beach with my cousin laying with him in, in the surf while we were chatting. He was getting married that weekend. And I was down there for that with my family. And he asked me, he was like, what, what, what was it like? And, you know, I hadn't even thought about it, but sitting there in the beach was like, what, what just happened? <laughs> you know, two days ago, I was, I was in Balad uh, doing my, doing my thing with fifth group. And now I'm here. What, what just happened? And just with no time to kind of process that. Now, fortunately, I had a very supportive family, have a very supportive family. And I, unlike you, I wasn't running and gunning. I was on the fob most of the time when I was down there. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it's hard for folks to adjust. But it seems like you you did it pretty well, Iman. So you came back. Were you, were you married at the time? I know you got a No. Wife. Yeah, no, I, I was not married at the time. I was still okay. single. Yeah. All right. So you come back, you're single, and you get out right away, you get out. A little while after 
No. So what ended up happening? So, so I, I, I end up laying, you know, taking the civil service exam. Cause I'm like, you know what? I, I gotta be, become a cop essentially. I think, sure. I think that's where I found my second mission. I'm like, yep. So, you know, us in the military, once we're locked on a mission, we don't stop. Right. We're like, we're like, tomahawks we just go right, you right. know <laughs> that and and it's funny like we were talking about dealing you know uh on the, on the business side but we'll talk about that in a second of what it's like dealing with civilians on the business side but uh but you know i'm like all right charlie mike time to do it and i got it done right they got hired by a by a police agency went through their academy uh, had a blast at their academy because i had a lot of fun uh i'm one of those weirdos that like getting smoked i don't know <laughs> you know because to me it's a challenge right it's a, it's that resilience that uh that resilience challenge that i always love and became a cop went through the job and eventually the army uh, i got medically discharged as a result so i was in a national guard unit getting ready to deploy again to iraq and i was looking forward to redeploying and I had a back injury. I was injured, obviously, from my first tour uh, in Iraq, uh, it, you know, MCL tear, my back, you know, also all host of other things. And the because I was taking some uh, Tylenol with codeine, some muscle relaxers to kind of ease the pain so I can do the job um, just temporarily because I was doing like uh, steroid shots into my back. You know, I was trying different treatments to be able to you know, help out. And the army decided to medically discharge me right away, like not even gave me a second thought. And to me, it kind of created that uh, disappointment slash frustration, where I'm like, God, Dan, I, I was like, here I am, thinking that, you know, what, I'm an asset to the army to the military, I should be deploying again. You know, I got brand new soldiers who have no idea, who haven't, you know, because, you know, you got boot camps that are graduating and you got the older veterans who are also retiring or getting discharged. Um, and you have these young soldiers that have no idea what they're stepping into. So me as as an NCO and, and you know, taking care of your soldiers is a priority, right? As an NCO, that's, that's the NCO's priority. That's their lifeline, right? Taking care of your soldiers. And, and they just threw me out just like that. And I was severely, I was extremely angry at that. And I said, you know what, F this then. All right, you want me out, I'm out. And kind of, kind of like, yeah, you know what, they're right. The army, all I am is a number. They didn't care. They don't care what I did or what I've done. That's it. I'm just, they're just moving on to the next guy. So, so I got a little sour for a little while after that, as you can imagine, uh, you know, knowing me and how, how I operate. And, uh, you know, turned all my attention to policing after that. And I think if I didn't have that, though, the policing side, if I wasn't there, I'd be in trouble, like, you know, emotionally, uh, psychologically, because the army just threw me out. So how similar is the culture between being in the military and being a police officer? So it's, it's fine. So so policing is, is its own. Uh, it, it's a paramilitary type um uh organizations right uh you have your you know whether it's chiefs colonels whomever you know you got majors a similar ranking structure right um to me it's it's pretty similar in that it doesn't matter where you're from you're just you're a cop welcome to the brotherhood or the sisterhood right you're you're you belong to that thin blue line as we call it not as what People like to think thin blue line wall of silence, quote unquote, you know, uh, there's actually that thin blue line between order and chaos and you are with it in that blue line. And it's, it's, it's 
similar yet it's also different okay so I, just so i I'll, I'll say this civilians who've never been in the military become cops are very different than civilian than veterans who become cops especially combat veterans that are are also a subgroup it's it, it's 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 weird and crazy right so you have like all right you have your combat veterans who are also cops we have like our own quote unquote click you have veterans who are also cops they have their own click and then you got the civilians who are cops and they have their own click now we all work well together we all mesh real well together but the difference is you can tell the combat veteran cop who doesn't bitch a moan if they get forced overtime. They're like, oh, part of the job, we're gonna, you know, it is, we gotta get it done, that's the mission, or get a shitty detail or do whatever, you know, you know, that comes with the territory, that's the job. You got the veterans who either, you know, were in that 90s era where it was the quiet phase, you know, the the, the peacetime type stuff, um, or even ones who are now, after the war's done, you know, we have a lot of young cops who are in the, you know, were in the military or uh, in the reserves and stuff like that, that aren't experiencing the constant deployments. Uh, so you have those types of veterans and those types of reservists who are also police officers. They bitch and moan, right? They're a little bit, you know, not not as much, uh, not not that bad, but they'll they'll you know gripe. And then you got your civilians, who everyone's like, "Come on, like really? That that's your concern?" Like, you know. So, but what's 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 interesting is just that mismatch, mishmash, right? Where you get all that mix, and 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 for all of us, we take care of each other as a result. And and you see a lot of the younger officers, civilians, really gravitate towards the combat veteran officer cop because we have a different take on things different or a different you know different just yeah it's, it's tough to explain i'm sure you know exactly what i'm talking about you could probably put in better words than me but but it's just we have a different mindset sure. i guess if you want to call it. because you know when, when i'm training cops i'm training them for the worst case scenarios type stuff that that's what i do i i train them i make sure that they're again the nco in me comes out says you got to train 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 you know train on everything your medical your 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 first aid you know weapons weapon proficiency rather than qualifying you know so i bring a lot of that nco creed into the job well and let's, let's talk about that let's talk about that a little bit Iman. so yeah. you started your own business while you've been a police officer let's, yes. let's talk about that a little bit yeah yeah so so uh started my own business i i've kind of seen the faults in policing uh training of cops uh most of it is check the box training that uh that you know it's one of those like all right let's hurry up and get this training and check the box and let's move on to the next training because that's what required of us by the uh wonderful politicians is just training 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 but but no, nothing none of the training really i would equate it to being proficient right it's it's just to get by just to check the box and say that's good as a result this is what you're getting now. the 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 end result is, uh, whether you know bad cops or lazy cops or cops who do not have the confidence to do the job. I mean, you know, well as I do in the military, they break the down, build you up to help you build that confidence. You know, be confident in your gear. You know, why do you think they throw us off a rappel tower? <laughs> you know, like to be confident that we know how to use our gear to have that proficiency. Um, you know to be able to do it um with with policing it's it's you know uh, some departments they qualify once a year with a firearm and that's it that's all that's required some do a little bit more but that once a year here's 50 rounds go shoot 
are you proficient? That's what I always ask. So, so with my, my business that I created is instilling that sense of proficiency, right? You come to one of my classes. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to stress you. I'm going to put you to the actual, to a real test of military standards, right? Task condition standards, the top, the three things that the army does in all this training, task condition standards. And these are the standards. Standards are going to be to test your proficiency. Now I'm not there to fail you, but I'm there to highlight where your deficiencies are, just like what the military does, right? This is your deficiency and this is how we're going to train to get you better. And we're going to do that. And that's essentially what my business revolves around is proficiency. So what's the name of your business? Uh, Hybrid Wolf Blue Line Strategies. Very nice. And, and hi- Hybrid Wolf. What yeah. specifically do you guys do? And go ahead and explain what Hybrid Wolf is. Yeah. So uh, specifically what we do is, is stress inoculation training. Um, I have uh, uh, green, uh, uh, green Berets uh, on my staff, uh, other uh, law enforcement, and I have uh, uh, strength and conditioning coaches on my staff. And what we test is your heart rate, heart rate variability. We get you up to a certain heart rate, whether it's 160, 170, 180. And we have you go through a door and deal with whatever situation. That's an example uh, of, of one of the things we, we do. Um, we're building a very specific program to outcomes-based training. That, that's kind of what it's called, outcomes-based training, is to, to bring out that outcome, to show that deficiency of where you need to work on, right? I mean, we just did a quick pilot of it uh, down in uh, Reno, Nevada. We went to the California Tactical Associations uh, Conference, and we did a quick little pilot for them, and and it got a lot of great reviews uh, because, you know, we put a couple officers on uh, an air bike, got their heart rate up to 150, 160. It only took a minute, um, and we had them do an entry. And we had two officers talk about a complete difference in reaction. One of them, you can tell they train, they do the entry, good to go. They did a good job. The other one, it just all broke down. Did the entry broke down? And that's, that's what we want to show. We want to work on like this checkbox, the training stuff. No, you can't do CQB in one day. Like that's, that's impossible. Like, no, uh, I mean, you know how long it takes to actually get, you know, accustomed to doing CQB. It, yeah. it doesn't take a day. You, you need like at least a month of training to do it properly. Right. But in, in the law enforcement world, that's just the way it is. They're like, all right, here's one day of CQB. Good to go. And then that's it. So, so that's essentially what my training, what my business does. Uh, hybrid Wolf, the reason why I came up with Hybrid Wolf is I spoke to uh, myself and, uh, and uh, another Special Forces guy, uh, fortunate to meet. His name's uh, Robert Scally. He was uh, 18 Del- uh, Delta back in the 80s. Uh, real good guy, smart, smart uh, guy. Uh, I call sometimes I call him Mother Goose because he's a medic and he, you know, wants to make sure also they're taken care of. But, um, but me and I, you know, we were talking at one point, and you know, we were talking about sheepdog mentality and you know, Colonel Grossman and and how much we agreed with a lot of what he said. But I've always felt, and he's always felt, that there's still a piece missing, right? In 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 law enforcement soldier because you have that one soldier or one cop who's not a sheepdog he's a little bit more right sheepdog responds to the threat right when the wolf shows up sheepdog responds to that threat so he came up and we decided to come up with this okay let's how about what a hybrid wolf hybrid wolf is both a dog and a wolf you know uh, uh the mating of the domestic dog and a wolf 
And I told Bob, I'm like, you know what? That's right. That that's exactly what it is. I said, you have certain soldiers, certain Marines, certain cops who have that predatory instinct to look for the problem and solve the problem, right? Versus waiting for the problem to show up. Yeah. And that's where hybrid wolf came from. Is just that little conversation I had with him. I've written numerous articles on Havoc on the hybrid wolf mentality and stuff like that. And and I think that's the next step in the chain, I guess, if you want to call it from sheepdog to hybrid wolf, is is you have that individual who's willing to push that extra mile to protect their flock or their sheep or whatever you want to call the civilian population. Well, yeah, I mean, your, your stuff is all over the internet. You've got your own podcast with Project Sapien. You've been on the Havoc Journal numerous times, lots of other podcasts and publications. What kind of feedback are you getting from police officers about the stuff that you're producing in your training? Oh, they, they absolutely uh, love it. Um, you know, I've, I've been training now for the past several months. And uh, actually, I was just at a training yesterday talking about stress inoculation and stress and, and you know, taking care of each other. It was, it was pretty good training. I was down at the at the Cape in, in Massachusetts training a police department, had about 25 officers and every single one of them. Hey, when when are you doing the next training? When are you doing the next training? Right. Because, you know, because they know and 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 they know what the deficiency. Right. I mean, that's the thing. You know, officers are smart. They, they you know, you you throw them this uh, BS training. I'm like, yeah, that's BS. It was a waste of my time. And and that's what most of this training is. But with me, it's like training should be about the quality, not the quantity, right? And and I know the army had some issues back where they were throwing PowerPoint after PowerPoint. It's like, come on, man! Like we we need to actually train and not worry about these administrative issues or whatever you want to call them. Where our soldiers, you know, you have eighteen, nineteen, twenty year olds who actually want to train. And you put them in a room to do an entire day of PowerPoint presentations. That's not doing anything. That's not training them for the next war or for the next uh, for the next phase of their career. You know, and and that's I know I don't know if the army got any better after I left, but at the time it was like PowerPoint after PowerPoint. It's like man, the, 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 we got to stop doing that. And that's what law enforcement turned to is PowerPoint after PowerPoint. And you're just like, no, we need to be actually training. Like you know, they'll they'll spend an eight hour day on first aid. And it's all PowerPoints. And you're like, how about we actually practice first aid? You know, give us, give us, you know, how, how the army, like when I went to combat lifesaver school, you know, you had an actual body that bled and you got to actually do the tourniquets and really, really work on stopping the bleeding. And, and let's do that because that's more realistic, not looking at a PowerPoint. And, you know, half the guys falling asleep as a result. <laughs> well, we still, uh, we still have issues with that in the army. Of course, death by PowerPoint is alive and well, but we have gotten better, especially the last couple of years. So we've adopted more of the adult learning model, which is basically what you're describing in your training, which I think is far more efficient yeah. than having folks in the classroom. Yeah. And related to that, it got to the point where we had so much required training that if you were actually doing it, you didn't have enough hours to get it done. Exactly. And I remember in and back in 2000, I was a young company commander in Korea saddled with all of these requirements. And and it was my intuition. I remember having a fleeting thought. I was like, I bet if we actually did all this, there, that there's not enough time for us to do it. And then many years later, uh, a, a researcher named Leonard Wong, had also spent a bunch of time in the Army, wrote an article called Lying to Ourselves, which basically exposed that. And the uselessness 
of requiring all this training that people aren't going to do. They're, yeah. they're going to they're going to have it done on paper, but they're going to put their smartest private behind the computer. And he's going to take that test. That's everybody. Exactly. That's and, exactly and what happens. Yeah. <laughs> Funny you say that. That's exactly what happens. Like, yeah. you know, it's it's it. That's the thing is, is like it's it's such a waste of time. I, I, you know, there are times where when, when I was uh, working major crimes and detectives, you know, I get sent to these trainings. I'm like, man, there's a waste of time. I could be doing my investigations right now. Yeah. Why, why am I sitting here going over, you know, ethics and all this other stuff? And and I think, you know, I, we've talked about this. And I said, listen, you're not going to teach an unethical person ethics. Like, you know, that that's the thing. Like, you, you're not you're not going to teach that you're you're not going to teach someone who is a harasser, sexually harasses everywhere. You're not going to put him in a class and he's going to all of he or she is all of a sudden going to have the light bulb. Oh, this is bad. I've been doing bad things like like, come on, who are you kidding? You know, you know, that, that that's the thing. And and I think, you know, uh, uh, a little while back, um, I recently did a post uh, just on on my on my Facebook page, just literally talking about that. And 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 it's something I, I thought about. And I said, you know what? I said, being a cop doesn't make you a better person but being a better person makes you a better cop right i said uh, an a-hole will always be an a-hole the difference is the a-hole now has a badge and no amount of training is going to fix that an unethical individual will always be unethical no amount of training will fix that and i've had so many comments after putting that out and it's 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 fact right i mean we see these these you know some of these people of power and and they get kind of you know in trouble for doing the same exact thing that they're preaching against we see it all the time and and that, that and that's the thing to me is like why waste time on that when we can be doing something else you know something more important yeah that's a tough balance and i remember them the heaping more and more trainings on a lot of which is politically motivated or related and okay well, I, I could do this training you tell me to do it i'll do it what's coming off my plate well, you still have to do everything. Yeah. And I remember there was a big push. It might have been during the Obama administration to get rid of a lot of the superfluous training, which I really appreciated and never thought was going to happen. So yeah. we still got too much, but it is getting a little bit better, Iman, and I'm grateful for it. Good. That's that's good. Well, Iman, the, the title of today's podcast is A Resolute Path, which kind of describes your life. It's also the title of your upcoming book. So can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, so uh, uh, so I've written a lot, you know, a lot, uh, lot, lots of articles. We've talked about that, and and I decided maybe I should put it all together into a book because I've come to realize from the, my podcast, from my writings, that a lot of people relate, or a lot of people didn't know that this is the inner workings of law enforcement or military. They had no idea. You know, the thought of you have a police officer, it's extremely highly trained. Well, that's a fallacy. That's the reality of it, right? That, that That's a fallacy. But that's what society is expected of us, right, of, of the profession. Same thing with soldiers and, you know, military. We're supposed to be these highly trained individuals. That's why we get put at such a high level of requirements. And, and you know, we get in a lot more trouble as a result because we're expected to be a certain level. Um so I wanted to publish the book to really put it out there and to also share kind of my story in hopes that it would also motivate others that 
are going through the same stuff I'm going through or went through uh, to also help give them that push or that resilience, that that resolute path, right? That second mission to say, you know what, let me let me do this because I need to go get this done. You know, let me get this mission done. Let me, let me, let me move on from whatever issues I got going on because I got other things going. And 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 that's the reason why I wanted this book to be published, you know, and and calling it the resolute path is because that's all I've had to deal with my entire life is that resilience in me. Uh, you know, I was talking to the, uh, during my class yesterday, I had, you know, about working out and, and some other life things that I've gone through and said, you know, build resilience. I asked the question, you know, group of 25 officers, what's resilience? Couldn't, it was quiet. What is resilience? And, you know, didn't get an answer. I said, resilience is simple, guys and gals. Like it's just pushing through. Said, so, you know, Let's put it on a sports, yeah, into sports, right? When you're about to lift something or you throw in the football, soccer, whatever, and you get beaten by the defender, do you just stop and say, oh, crap, I got beaten, I'm done? Or do you pick that ball back up and say, you know what, let's do this? I was like, that's resilience right there. Said it, it, it follows you through your entire life, but it all depends on what you do with it. And that's the thing with me is, you know, since I was a kid, that resilience got built in me because of the civil wars, stuff that I've seen. I mean, you know, again, like my childhood, there's a lot of snapshots. So I don't know if there's more in there that helped develop, you know, who I am today as a result. Uh, I mean, the war stuff. Yeah, that's all vivid memories. Even even Jesus has telling the guys uh, I was deployed with my dude, we're coming up to our 20 years. You know, it's like, you know, it still it still feels like it's yesterday, like some stuff that are so vivid still feels like it was yesterday that was done. And if you think about it, like, yeah, 2005, we're coming, you know, to the 2023, 2025, a couple of years later, that's going to be 20 years, you know, that we we've been. uh uh, you know, after war and, and it's, it's, it's that resilience in all of us that got developed and grew over time. And I think, you know, with, with the younger generation, uh, that's, what's lacking is that resilience. And, and there's a, a famous quote, I, I don't know if it was Jordan Peterson that said it, or, or he got it from someone, I, but, you know, he said, you know, uh, hard times create hard men, hard men create, soft times soft times creates soft men and and you see that though right you know when after post 9 11 uh everyone that was going in we had this drive you know america had this drive uh, post 9 11 and then you start to see as we are going after our enemies anywhere in the globe people over here are getting laxed as a result because we're fighting outside now you know, every once in a while, like the Boston Marathon bombing, it reminds people we do have enemies still within our borders. But again, you have those individuals with that drive to go after it, you know, to go after them. And now you're back into this laxed phase all of a sudden, right? And and it's this never-ending cycle. And us as 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 you know, service members and law enforcement first responders. We never forget those because we knew what hard times felt like, but we also know how dangerous soft times are like. I mean, peacetime's great, but like I said yesterday in the class, would you rather be a warrior in the garden or a gardener at war? How would you, you know, how, why do we stop training the way we've trained? Why don't we keep up that training to keep us at that tip of the spear? So when... Again, the wolves come to our walls. We're ready versus 
the, you know, uh, uh, Kyle Lamb, you know, uh, Delta Force uh, uh, operator Kyle Lamb, uh, he, he put it great in a great way, too. He said, you know, he watched a police rec- uh, police recruiting video. A uh, buddy of his sent him two police uh, recruiting videos that he's a, a law enforcement officer in a major city, I think, out in the West Coast. One video was, you know, recruiting video of an officer putting on his gun belt, putting on his vest, right? Getting ready for work, goes out there, pulling cars over, foot chases, you know, active shooter, whatever, you know, this whole recruiting thing, SWAT teams, you know, look badass, you know, something out of a, you know, an army, uh, army be all you can be type, you know, (laughs) commercial, you know, looked awesome. Then the other recruitment video was this cop doing like, you know, animal you know balloon animals finger painting whatever uh, reading stories to kids stuff like that uh the command staff like the other video the one where he's doing the finger painting he or she are doing the finger painting stuff like that and he's you know kyle was like really they went with that one he's like why can't you have both right why why can't you have the officer who is willing to go that extra mile to get after an active shooter or a terrorist or whatever, but at the same time can go back and do the finger pain. And again, that, that whole thing that goes back, uh, why warrior in the garden or, or, or a gardener at war. Right. And, and that's what I asked the class yesterday. I said, which, which one would you, would you want? Who, who are you as a cop in the beat? What kind of cop do you want backing you up? And they all went, Oh yeah, well, we want that guy. The guy who always trains, the, the officer who's always ready, who's prepared. I said exactly. So why don't we train to that? And you know, then you get the silence, right? That, that that. But that's the point. You know, that's the point with this book and with my training is to demand the question, to ask the question. Why aren't we as a profession training this way? Yeah, I think those are important questions to ask. And what you were just describing there made me think of Machiavelli's famous question: "Is it better to be feared or loved?" Yeah. And I think as a police officer, you you should. Be both. Yeah. You should be feared by the criminals and loved by the people you're there to protect. And if you can ma- make that balance, I think it's a good place to be. My, my, my favorite quote from a, from a real hardened criminal that he told me once uh, when I was working uh, plain clothes undercover. And, and he, uh, he said to me, he said, you know, he's like, you are, he said, you are the nightmare we all dream about. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, man, that's going to be my tagline. I love it. You know, and and he, he, he literally put it that way. But at the same time, he knew he can come to me if he had an issue because I don't judge like that, right? I'm not judge, jury, executioner. That, that, that's not what I do, right? My job is to go after you and let the courts handle you, right? Good, bad, indifferent about the courts, whatever. That's a whole topic right there on all on its own. But that's what I want because, yeah, you want the best of both worlds. You want to be loved by the local populace, right? The whole idea behind uh, UW, all right, you know, uh, win the hearts and minds. And I'm big with that, especially with out on the road with my officers uh, out on the road. I said, hey, listen, go say hi to the businesses. Get out of your cruiser. Talk to people, right? That's the best way. That is the best intel gathering you could do is human intelligence. And some law enforcement officers do a good job at it. Others, they, they don't do a good job at it because they don't know how. And to me, you know, from my experience in Iraq and, and everywhere else, 
I'm a teacher. I'll talk to anybody. It doesn't really matter to me. Right. Uh, I would have gang members who know me. And I remember I got assigned a a brand new Dodge Charger, right? Jet black plane. It was like, you know, it's badass car. It was like close to 400 horsepower. You know, it was, it was, it was a pretty cool car. I remember driving through the city center and one of the gang kids, um, a Crips kid, yo, opposite fell. I'm like, Hey, what's up, dude? He's like, yo, that's a hot ride. Are we going to, you know, you want to, you know, I forget exactly what he told me. I'm like, I'm like, yo, bring out your whip. Let's do this. You know, and, and but, but, it, but, you know, it's that back and forth kind of mutual respect for one another, like, because he knew I, I had a job to do and he knew I was pretty much relentless at it. You know, when, 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 uh, when people know that I have them on their radar, they know that I'm probably going to turn over every rock looking for them until I find them. But at the same time, I'm also that, easygoing type cop that you can come up to and talk to, right? You can come up and be like, Hey, you know, I got this issue. I got this, or I got that. I said, all right, let's figure it out. Let's solve it. You know? So, so that that's the best of both worlds. Yeah. And I think there was a, a line in roadhouse, the movie, that old, that old movie about <laughs> yeah. it's be nice until it's time to not be nice. I think that's a yeah. good way to go through life. If yeah. you're a jerk to people, no matter what you do, yeah. that tends to work out better. Yep. Exactly. Well, I, mean, I mean, you mentioned Kyle Lamb. So as you know, I'm the officer in charge of West Point's combat weapons team. And we were at nationals last year and I was at the range, minding my own business, saw a guy out there was about my age, clearly another vet. Like, you, you know how you can look at people. Yeah. Like, guys yeah. Yeah. Someone over to him, we were talking, we had a conversation. After he walks away, one of my cadets comes over to me and, and he says, hey, do you know who that guy was? I said, well, he said his name was Kyle Lamb. So I guess that's Kyle Lamb. They said, yeah, but do you know who that guy is? And I said, no. And they said, you should look him up. And I did. I'm like, wow, yeah. what, a, what a humble, great guy. And, and then I got to talk to him at the, the the guys won the national champions that year, like they do habitually because they're a great team. So when we were at the dinner that night, I got to call, talk to him again. And what a very humble, uh, great guy and talked about the importance of non-commissioned officers and the essentiality of that young lieutenant being in charge. While you listen to your non-commissioned officers, you still have to be the decision maker. So, yeah. Great guy. Got a lot of time for, for Kyle Lamb. Yeah. I mean, I, I talk to him all the time now, periodically. I had him on, on my podcast talking about, uh, talking to him about, um, uh, uh, combat leadership and, and talking about how combat leadership transferred into law enforcement and being that NCO, that senior NCO, you know, in law enforcement, taking that NCO creed and applying it to law enforcement and the importance of it. And, uh, and like you said, what a humble dude, like my uh, co-host didn't really know much about Kyle. So I sent him a, a, th- a bio on him and he's like, Oh my God. I said, <laughs> yeah, I said, that's, that's who we're talking to buddy. <laughs> you know? Well, so there, there are a lot of great people working over at SIG. I think uh, general retired Scott Miller's over there right now. So they're yeah. just backing up just badasses over. Yeah. There. Yeah. Yeah. No, and he's a, so- the, not, the, the NCO creed, the non-commissioned officer creed you mentioned, I mean, what the, I think the first line is no one's more professional than I. That's a great way to live your life, too. Yeah, that, that's the thing. Like, you know, I was newly promoted to sergeant at my job and uh, and literally it just like, you know, it's always been with me. But now it's a little more prevalent because, yeah, now I'm the sergeant, you know, I'm a sergeant at work right now. I'm like the knife hands coming out definitely big time now, you know, but. But that's the thing. Like now, now it's just uh, I've resorted to a lot more mentoring training. More than like I'm, I've always been that kind. But 
you know, now that you put in a supervisory role, they call it, um, you know, you're, you're more of that, that go-to now, you know, and I think our, the command staff in any police department should realize how critical the sergeants are because we're still out on the road where the road supervisors, right? right? We go out to the scenes and we manage the scenes. Uh, we manage major incidents and, and they've, they, you know, I don't think I've heard and, and learned that there are some, uh, command staff that think they are the ones that run the ship. Like, no, man, it's your, <laughs> it's always been your NCOs. You just don't realize it yet. You know, that that's the thing. I, I mean, it's, it's funny, like with officers, I remember, uh, over in Iraq, we had a young, young butter bar <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, he gave us the mission brief, commander's intent, all that good stuff. And he got so hung up on when the soldiers need to eat. I was like, sir, come on. Don't worry about that. <laughs> I was like, you gave us the timeline. Let the NCOs handle the rest. All yeah. you need to know is this is all we needed to know is that's the SP time. And that's it. Right. Joe's got his head. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, don't even worry about that. You know, but but I think him as a as a brand new butterfly, right, right out of uh, I think he was either yeah, ROTC. He was a ROTC kid guy, a, a cadet, and then you know butterfly and all that. I don't think he really grasped the NCOs until we started speaking up right away. You know, on on how and time management and stuff like that. Like we were like, oh no no, don't even just sign there lt uh, just this we'll tell you what we need and and you just sign there and and you know that's the thing yeah well i i got my commission through rtc also and i suspect what happened to that young lieutenant is when he was in rtc somebody probably didn't get fed mm -hmm. he was an nco role as a cadet and he probably got jacked for it so he's like yeah yeah <laughs> yeah i think it takes it takes officers a little while to understand that individual and crew level collective training is nco responsibility and they're going to take care of that. And most yeah. of the time, in fact, I can't think of an incident where it didn't happen over my career. Most of the time, the NCOs are going to take care of that stuff. Yep. And it, it is smart to inspect and check because ultimately you're responsible. And sometimes they need help. And sometimes, unfortunately, they're bad NCOs. Yeah. But for the most part, they're going to be all right. You need to yeah. concentrate on that up and out and let the NCOs do down and in, Lieutenant. Yeah, exactly. And, and that's the thing, like, you know, when I'm out on the road, um, you know, now now as a, as a sergeant, you know, I'm, I'm managing, you know, major incidents or major scenes or whatever and you know i'll call the lieutenant i'm like hey lt this is what we got x y and z and this is the decision x y and z okay cool all right thanks and that's it you know and 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 that's that's the way it should be and that's the way it is right and and you know a lot of these uh you know again the higher ups that i've learned that feel that they're the ones that run the ship that's where you start seeing the mor that morale of police departments really bad guys leaving the job stuff like that's because they're not accustomed to ncos telling them no you're wrong you know and this is the way it should be done and them not taking that advice right and and as ncos again unless you have bad ncos nine times out of ten the advice we dole out is the good one yeah and it's up to you as the officer to kind of swallow that pride a little and to be like all right you know what yeah you, you run it however you think saj that's it you know, yeah. and 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 it, like you said, though, it takes a little bit of getting used to as officers to get used to that. Uh, but when you start to see that allowing the NCO to actually steer the ship, it's a whole different, whole different game. You know, it's, yeah, it's a, and, it, and for officers in particular to concentrate on the things that they should be doing. I know for, for me and definitely for my wife, which is a whole different conversation, 
of, of being comfortable with letting people work when you're not, or you're just not doing that same thing. For example, putting up the tents, every officer's, every good officer is going to want to help with that. And sometimes they do, but I mean, you've got soldiers for that. And a lot of NCOs feel awkward when your lieutenant's out there pounding pickets when he should oh, be yeah. doing op orders or something yeah. like that. So I think if people understand their roles and there is a lot of overlap between officers and NCOs. And a lot of times officers could do it. Uh, NCOs could do officers jobs. Yep. We see platoon sergeants filling platoon leaders all the time. Yeah, I remember my first platoon sergeant, best NCO in the army, sergeant first class, Ellery Edwards, just helping me understand that he had his job. I had my job and it works better when both people are there doing their jobs. He made it very clear to me. He did not want to be a platoon leader. Yep. I don't want to be a platoon leader. I'm a platoon sergeant. Yeah. Sir, you be the platoon leader. Okay, yeah. great. And that, that worked out really well. Yeah. Well, Iman, none of us get through this on our own. So in whatever detail that you feel comfortable with, tell us a little bit about your family. So, uh, yeah, I mean, my wife and kid, I mean, it's it's uh, the my wife. I mean, God bless her. I don't know how she puts up with my <laughs> schedule and my work and, and you know, the, the tumultuous because she has a career on her own, too. You know, uh, it's a dual career career household that we have here. And, you know, uh, my schedule is always, you know, the, the, the life of a cop is never, never the same. You know, it's just no, we're not a nine to five gig, you know, holidays off. We're 24, seven, 365. That's just the way it is. And I don't know how she does it, but must be a lot of patience, but, uh, but, <laughs> but it, you know, it, it, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's great because it's, it's one of those that you need that kind of support though, in this type of role. Um, if you don't have that kind of support, you see divorce rates that are high between cops. You see, yeah. uh, again, suicide rates is very high. I think we're over 150 for this year uh, for suicide yeah, rates, uh, you know, and and more cops take their own lives than they do uh, out in the field, you know, um, uh, be, being killed by bad guys. Uh, so uh, the support system at home is is critical, very critical to, to, to the job. And for me, I, I try as much as I can to never, never bring work home, but if it's a real critical incident, like a uh, infant death or something, I'll, I'll say something because of, you know, I'll get home and, you know, I remember one day I got home, it was a bad incident. And, uh, I, I had to tell, like my wife came and, you know, I got the honeydew list and all that stuff. And I just, I was like, I was about like, I was ready to, to almost flip out but not really because i kind of knew what i just came from but she had, you know she has no idea you know right. i'm just getting home and and finally i told i had to tell him like listen i i need a minute just had a bad situation at work and and for her she recognized she knows to recognize it right away too so she does a good job and she'll give me that space and then when i'm ready to talk i'll tell her and we'll talk it through and then i'm good after that so that support system at home is very very critical um to have um you know my my parents um i think I've, I've talked about that before they never were supportive of me being in the military law enforcement stuff like that so i never really had that side of support so having support from my wife and obviously my my, my son my 11 year old uh they you know, it, it's it, it's always been different for me, right? Where when I was single and and had you know had my parents, I could never look for them, look to them for support because I never had it. So it 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 was it was a different dynamic, right? It was like because I got so used to uh, closing myself off 
that my wife literally has to pry me open in order to get me to talk or say something, you know, and, and she does a very good job doing that uh, versus, you know, when, when with my parents, I would just be a shut in and just be like, you know what, I'm not going to talk to you because I don't need to. Well, I'm in last question, which do you think has been more challenging for you personally, the battlefields you faced overseas or the ones here at home? I think the ones the ones here at home, uh, battlefields overseas were obvious, right? You know, you you had missions, you know, you had your enemies, you had your allies, you had a purpose driven, knew what knew what the mission was, and pushed on and did it. Um, back home, when you come home after everything you've been through uh, overseas, where you start realizing that you never grieved after losing, you know, friends, uh, it takes a toll, you know, eventually it, it, it catches up to you in a way that you don't anticipate. Right. So it really, it really hits you hard. Um, at home is it's, it's very different, you know, where I can go out and go to a bar or hang out with friends and do whatever versus overseas. You, you don't have that option. Over here, you have a lot of options. That that was my biggest struggle, is and and still struggle to this day is the amount of options we have here to be able to do whatever you know versus overseas where yeah our fob is our piece of America, and that's what we protect. And when we go outside the wire, we protect each other because to us, kind of like the way I equated it is the convoy is America. We won't let anyone attack it or hurt it or whatever, because that's our convoy. That's America. Anywhere we go, that's America. Uh, over here, yeah, I'm in the States. I'm in the US. Everybody that I run into, I feel the need to protect, right? Even that's why we always say we're always on duty 24-7. You know, if I, if I, you know, I do this all the time where if I see an accident scene and someone hurt, I will stop and help. Um, not because I'm a cop, but it's because that's who I am. And just like I said, you know, uh, a, a, a be the better person you are, the better cop you are, because you just are that better person, right? And you see it day in and day out with other law enforcement officers. So the battlefields at home are tough because on the one hand, you have politicians, stakeholders, whatever, that are just really pounding on you because of their agendas, their ideals. And then you have the other side, the bad people, the criminal element, who are trying to destroy our way of life. And so you have you you have this split where you're fighting two different battlefields all of a sudden, you know, where you have the one side where you have the stakeholders, politicians who are coming up with these policies that you know are detrimental to society because of their own personal agendas. And then you have the other side, the criminality that is also doing what they do. So again, that thin blue line between order and chaos, right? That that's kind of the line we hold, and it's very it's it's it, it's a tough battlefield to be in, and that's where that resilience comes in, you know, to have that resilience to push through. Right, right now, law enforcement obviously is in horrible times, you know, and the ones who are leaving is unfortunate. The ones who are staying, like us, like the hybrid wolves who are just staying, are the ones that are holding it together. You know, I mean, if, if every single one of us put our shields up, guess what happens with that chaos just overruns and takes over. That's right. And that's what we see in different cities like Portland, Seattle, 
San Francisco, San, Sacramento, Austin, the chaos is taking over now. Yeah, New York City, that chaos is now taking over. That's that's the result. So the battlefields at home is a lot, lot harder than the battlefields overseas. To me, the, the, the way I see it. That's a great answer, Ayman. Well, we're at the end of the, the podcast, but I wanted to turn it over for you to any last comments or thoughts that you have before we sign off. No, I'm I'm actually just uh, really excited to be the the first inaugural <laughs> <laughs> on 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 the podcast and uh, and you know as as we work through the uh, the publishing of the book, you know I uh, hope people uh, take the time to go uh, looking for it. I think it's going to be uh, it's going to be different, you know, a different uh, look at uh, at a soldier's life, at a uh, police officer, the, the daily trials triumphs failures of of being a cop and you know i i kind of just put it out there uh you know with no filter really uh you know as as you well know uh and and hopefully uh people will get something out of it well yeah i mean i think no filter could have easily been the title for your book as well (laughs) (laughs) yeah exactly (laughs) yeah and it had to be you for the first the first podcast, because I think when we talk about battlefields on the home front and the front lines that, that you're, you encapsulate that perfectly. And I'm glad you're our first guest. So thank you so much, Iman, for being on today. Oh, thank you, Charlie. So many thanks to our sponsor, the Epic Times. Today's guest, Iman Caffell, our partners at the Havoc Journal, and especially to you, our audience. Godspeed and good hunting on your own battlefields. <laughs>